Hello, you're listening to Thought Starters, a podcast on the business of creativity recorded in the pod at White City Place. I'm Ellie Stuhler. In the field of architecture, communicating ideas has always been a challenge. A combination of scale models, illustrations, including today's digital renderings, as well as 2D architectural plans, have been used for centuries to explain how a space, a building, or even an entire city might look and feel. It is, of course, hard for many to truly imagine the experience of walking through those environments. But that's all beginning to change with the introduction of less expensive, quicker and more elaborate virtual reality experiences. Now, clients and even the public can step inside buildings, guide themselves around them and experience them in a one-to-one scale. The question is, will this make for better buildings? Or will it strip away power from designers who begin to make the process feel like a choose-your-own-adventure? In the pod today, two architects who've embraced the use of VR in their practices to discuss what they see as the future of this technology in design. Without further ado, let's meet our conversationalists. Hi, I'm Russell Potter, director and architect at Soda. And I'm Oliver Solway, I'm a director at Softroom. Oliver Salway is a founding director of Softroom, an architecture and design studio based in London. For 20 years, Softroom has created award-winning architecture and interiors for clients as diverse as Virgin Atlantic and the V&A Museum, as well as environments for the BBC, Wallpaper Magazine, Time and Vogue. Russell Potter is an architect and director at the award-winning studio Soda. They have worked on prestigious projects in and around central London, building a reputation for sensitively integrating contemporary architecture within the context of complicated and delicate existing buildings, including the Grey 2 listed 76 Street for Soho House and the ongoing redevelopment of Walker's Court, also in Soho. So we've been using VR for the last couple of years. Um, on a variety of different projects. I think probably the one that has sort of uh, most greatly evolved in terms of our, our understanding of it and the capabilities of VR sort of in terms of architecture has been a project we're doing called the Boulevard Theatre, which is a, a tiny, very compact 160-seat cinema. Uh, cinema, that's a lie, it's a theatre, uh, in the middle of Soho. And the whole thing revolves on two levels, so at stage level and at balcony level. And to kind of add further complication and sort of technological sort of difficulties to it, the stage uh, has multiple configurations within that. So for us, uh, that was the kind of starting point that we had this kind of concept, this idea, a notion for a space that we didn't think there was anything out there that we could kind of reference. And certainly it was both became both a tool for us and for our clients as an initial starting point to understand what these configurations are uh, and to actually kind of make most use out of that because... In essence, we needed to sort of look at different stage configurations, different seating configurations, work out is that stage shape, orientation, etc. useful? Can you get enough seats around it? And that kind of thing. So it really led the conversation uh, from there. So we started um, developing it with a, an outside company, but we very quickly kind of set up um, a kind of proper VR hub in the corner of our studio so that we could uh, develop it in live time with them. And we started with a very simple kind of white box model just to get the basic forms um, and we then went on as a, to kind of develop the functionality of the space right through to kind of sight lines from every individual seat um, looking right through to kind of finishes uh, we've got kind of interesting hot sprayed metal finishes which we wanted to check the kind of glare and things on so we came we really used it across kind of all 
um, disciplines, and that's, I guess, probably the most use we've had of that particular project. Um, at Softroom, we've been using VR for a couple of years as well, and um, I think that we've found that really, we've rather than any particular project that it served uh, its purpose on, we've just incorporated it into the workflow generally. Um, I'm sure we'll go on to talk about this more, but um, for us, the ability to kind of proof our work as we go along uh, at full scale is something completely unprecedented in architecture. Um, and so uh, we're finding it incredibly valuable from that perspective. Um, and similarly to yourself, we've been using it to test out things like sight lines, ergonomics very much. Um, we're designing a quite a a compact hotel room at the moment and it's amazing the level of detail that you need to get into in those spaces and every sort of inch and millimetre really counts so being able to test that out very carefully is is super important to us but we've yet to make that um, leap I suppose to some of the things that you're talking about where you're really testing out materiality as well mm. as geometry with it um, we're still in the sort of static 2D render phase for that uh, but it's certainly something we want to move towards. Sure. Yeah, no, I think, I think there's always going to be that. Um, and there's, there is no substitute in that sense in terms of actually having physical sample with it, you know, in your hands. We've actually, kind of slightly contradictory, we've actually had uh, members of the design team or even the client with the headset on looking at a certain finish and then having the finish to touch with them at the same time. Just because, again, you get that sense of scale. So we've had the, this particular bit what I was talking about was the... Um, uh, kind of double curvature metallic bands that form the balcony front um, and you can have a sample you know even up to a meter long but it's not the same thing as seeing it on the other side of the room so actually to be able to have that you're sort of playing with two scales at the same time which is quite nice you get the touch feel and texture and you do it's quite funny you know i'm sure you've had this as well where you sort of put the model on some for the first time and they do feel so sort of immersed in it that they're reaching out for handrails or you know, they can't quite understand why it's not there in front of you. Absolutely. It is a fascinating moment when people have that first immersion. Mm. We have a particular client we've been working with, Virgin Voyages, on their new cruise ships uh, for the last few years. And uh, I had, we'd built a VR, or we'd built a model that we were using and we tried it in VR. Um, and we brought the client in and she was saying, oh, no, VR never works for me. I never see it in 3D. You know, it's always static viewpoints. And I said, just try it, just try it. And she put it on and immediately was completely uh, smitten by the experience, mm. I would say. And what's quite fascinating is um, that... I don't know which system you use, but one of the ones that we use has a very simple navigation. You just point mm. the thing to where you want to jump to next and off it goes. Yeah. And you only have to people tell people that one thing mm. once and suddenly they've got complete fluency, which is an amazing thing given how long it takes people to learn to read drawings that you yeah, do definitely. or anything else. So that immediacy of the communication is quite amazing, I think. And I think that... And again, it's a, it was a real, really interesting learning curve, but you're right, when you do a, a 2D still graphic, you're very much focused on almost the bits that you want to show or that you want to be seen. When someone's got a VR headset on, there's no hiding. They That's can look up and they can see the bits that you've missed up there or whatever it might be, which okay. is actually really... I love it. Yeah. I love it for that very reason, because when we first started out as a business, one of the things that we used to do was CG visualisation, mm. two-dimensional computer graphic visualisation of spaces, both for ourselves and others. And... Um, that's gotten to a stage in terms of its arms race now that the, there's an ability to be so realistic and, and it's incredibly time-consuming. And the results you get out are, frankly, lies. 
They're exactly mm. like estate agents' photos of flats you might go to. Super wide-angle lens to make the space look far bigger than it really is. Um, shot close to the floor to exaggerate the height. Oh, take out that column there because it's blocking the view. <laughs> and you end up with these fantasy views that actually uh, don't really communicate anything realistic. Whereas you put the headset on and immediately everything's in exactly the right proportion, exactly the right scale. There are no lies. There's mm. nowhere to hide. But I think that's an incredibly refreshing mm. thing, really, because I was really bored of having to convince people with more and more elaborate visuals. There's only so many blue skies and bright sunshines you can do. That's right. Or, <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah, and I think um, allowing people to come into the space and, and have a look at it is, is kind of really key. Um, and ultimately, as you say, you're... We as architects, we are kind of we are selling a vision, but it should be the truth as well. I completely agree with that. So, I think yeah, ultimately you've got to manage expectations of the client. So you don't want to be hiding columns and what have you. If there is a column in the way and you can't see past it, then you kind of you need to know that. So that's right, and it actually works at both ends of the process because at the very end you're guarding against them going in and going oh. Really? Is this what it's like? That's not what I thought it was going to be, because they know exactly what it's going to be like. And then the other part of it is right at the beginning of the process, when they first got it, they come to you and they first got a site, and they sit down with the plan that they've been given by the surveyor, and the clients inevitably start drawing things in about a quarter of the scale <laughs> they should be, tables and chairs, like four to small. I'd normally go yeah. up one to ten, yeah, probably. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And so <clears throat> being actually able to immerse them in that three-dimensional bare site just so they really understand what the spatial constraints are, I think is incredibly mm. valuable. And that's actually not too time-consuming. No, really not. You know, especially with the, I can't remember what it's called, is it the, what, the new Oculus headset mm. that's kind of £200, you can get it from Amazon, I can't remember what, what the actual name is, but um, with that you can pretty much plug in a SketchUp model. So yes. it's a really basic form, you can add, drop in little bits of colour or texture, but that as a tool to kind of get people to understand a space that they might never see is, yeah, really yeah. interesting. SketchUp is now the sort of architectural terminology shorthand for what used to be like a polyboard model mm. or a white card model that you used to make. And um, they are great things because they're so malleable and they're such simple presentations and you don't get bogged down in materiality and all of that. It's just about the geometry. And so we really do make a lot of use of it in the early stages with that white card sort of... Uh, appearance. Nice. So do your is your modelling all done in-house? Yes. Um, we've always had a fairly strong three-dimensional modelling capability mm. in the office and, um, and we haven't yet um, uh, specifically recruited anyone to work on VR stuff. Mm -hmm. So it's really just the output they would have otherwise been doing and you press the view in VR button and off it mm. goes. Um, but we are going to get rapidly to the point where we need to get some more specialist help involved because even though there was a sweet moment when it was acceptable to just have the simple depictions and that was really great to be able to go back to that again, suddenly the arms race has kicked in uh, and now people do expect are starting to expect that full, full immersion, full sense of lighting and texture and all of that, which is time-consuming and quite specialised, mm. I think. Yeah, I think we actually, we sort of, as I say, we outsourced for that particular project, but we um, we had the kind of full beauty for parade from a number of different people, and it's kind of, yeah, very showing us sort of show homes where you can click a button and have the music and the mood lighting and the fire lights up, and then you can change your chandelier to a different light or whatever, and it's amazing where it's going. I think it's got a certain place for it, but that he was saying, you know, 
looking at the, the pod that we're in now, you could look at the table with your headset on, you can click a button, you don't want a round one, you want a square one, you want a wooden one, you want a metal one, and they'll all be linked through to the end, you know, you can buy it in yeah. the model. And so it's it's amazing where it's going, but I, I agree, it's got to kind of, yeah. you've got to and, position and it right. Again, that just creates another headache for us to have to serve up all of these options <laughs> all the time. The one thing with physical models that was always quite nice is that, you know, it would be quite a commitment to get one made, particularly mm. if it's been made by a professional model maker. And they weren't things that you could easily change or swap bits in and out of to show different options. So they had this sort of kind of fixed quality that also fixed things in the minds of the client that, you know, some decisions have actually been taken. Mm. You know, and this is the reality of it. Uh, and then you get into a world with the CGIs and the VR, whereas the potential for constant change. Yeah. And you really have to, I think, learn how to discipline people but actually at a certain point you've got to make a choice mm. <laughs> otherwise this thing's never going to get built um so it's great to have that ability for flexibility and options and all of that but as you say you have to sort of control it in some way are you finding it most useful for you mentioned flexibility there um with virgin or however it might be that there's actually flexibility within the design as in is physically moving bits and pieces as well or um yeah again that's a level of complexity that we've yet to entirely embrace um where you can interact with things and move them around and stuff like that um <clears throat> no we've tended to use it um we have shown options but we'll be showing you know this is complete version one this is complete alternative version rather than being able to say right now you can just move that to there and that to there um, it's partly i think due to the fact that at the moment uh, not exclusively but predominantly these are single user experiences so one person dives in other people can watch on a mm -hmm. screen what they're doing but one person dives in um, and um uh, they operated at that time, and so we've tr we've been trying to avoid situations where we have to do too much kind of teaching of a client or someone what they're supposed to be doing. Yeah, and so the simplicity of some of the um, the simple models and how you interact with them currently seems to work a bit better for us. I don't know whether that's borne out in your experience. Yeah, I think so. I think um, for us it was a case of kind of onboarding everyone. So we didn't want it to just become a sales tool where it was just selling you know this kind of madcap idea we wanted it to become an actual useful tool both for our you know for us in the studio but also for the rest of the team so we've certainly found that by having it so such an intuitive setup that it's helped our engineers understand certain things it's helped our you know acoustic consultants understand actually of course they're going to model it themselves anyway but just to get their head around what our concept is and how we can work it through together so for us that's been the most exciting bit is that I suppose traditionally, as you say, it was kind of an architect and client relationship using the VR as a tool from one to sell to the other. Um, and now we're seeing it going on and on and on, even, uh, you know, into kind of people who are the end users of the space who are looking at different configurations of, like, say, whether it's tables and chairs or it's a performance on stage or whatever it might be. Um, so we've constantly got it kind of rolled, even down to kind of press and PR and what have you, that for people to understand, anyone who might be touched by that building in some way or might be involved with its story from conception through to completion and beyond um it's a really interesting tool mm. could you go back i mean it's like now it's impossible to imagine or hard to remember life without the <clears throat> cad program i can't hold a pen anymore um, uh, <laughs> but obviously there was a time before um that's certainly when i started working and um uh, so 
It's it's an amazing new to- tool. It's not a toy. It's an amazing new tool. But I'm interested. How did you solve the same problems of communication before you had VR? Yeah, it's interesting. I think I think for us, it's got a, it has got a kind of time and place. I wouldn't. We don't roll out across every project. And I think you're right. If it's not um, used, I wouldn't say responsibly, but in the right kind of way, it does become a bit of a gimmick and a bolt on or, or a nice to have. Um, the truth is, in this in in that project I was mentioning, we hadn't done that type of project for. I don't think anyone had, which is why it was so useful. Um, if we were to do a smaller kind of domestic scale product, would we do it? Probably not. I don't. I think people have a better understanding of that size and scale of space, which I think primarily is the kind of first um, point of call and the first benefit that we get out of it is to mm-hmm. un- understand the scale and, yeah. and you know, or whether it's movable parts or whatever it might be. So no, I completely agree. But then. On the flip side, you know, other spaces that people kind of have understanding of already, like a typical office space, some of our clients are using that as a as a sales tool to show the finished product way before. So it's, in, it's now the sort of being used as the kind of version of buying off plan, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe it's maybe people have got a kind of a lower threshold, boredom threshold, and they need exciting <laughs> and that kind of thing. But I don't know. You're listening to Thought Starters, recorded at White City Place. In conversation today are architects Oliver Solway and Russell Potter. What it gives us now is this incredible ability to fine-tune that process up to committing to that uh, prototype built room. Um, and, uh, and it's a bit like now, it's a bit like um, when in Hollywood, they go and watch the dailies. You know, they will go into a cinema and watch footage that was shot yesterday so they know what to shoot today and what's working and what's not working. And in the same way, it's great being able to go in and looking at today's progress, you know, what got achieved yesterday, what should change, what should be advanced. And um, there's no substitute for that. No physical model we ever used to make would substitute that. Uh, and so that would be that would be quite hard to give up again at the moment, having finally been given this ability i think that's the bit that i would sort of not find scary but the, the idea of if we had we don't have the capabilities and how having said that i'm sure some of our guys could kind of jump on it quite readily but if you did have that capability and how how, how do you ever stop yourself because you're right it's not you, you used to kind of make cardboard models and then you stop when you run out of card you know, you know you've done <laughs> enough playing then or you've been to the shop three times to buy more card I, i'm sort of interested in the idea that because there's no physical resource other than time going into it, maybe it's just time-driven, I don't know. Yes, it could be. The other thing I'm interested in is actually how we can use it to um, to show to a client that uh, there is a, um, uh, a consequence to the decision that they're taking. And it's almost like the site work starts day one. Okay, it may be a virtual site up until the point that they move to the real one. But in terms of the cumulative effect of decisions that are being made, you know, you, they should be able to go into it at any point and say, look, unless you change your mind, this is what's going to get built. It's probably going slightly off topic, but have you done anything with AR? Uh, no, we haven't. But I do think that that is such a, um, a future potential for this technology I think being able to um, mix um, full uh, virtual reality and the real world um, is incredibly powerful I don't think anyone's yet found the killer application Mm. for it 
Um, but one killer application that is so, I mean, it, it, it grew out of, um, as I understand it, grew out of uh, work that was done by people like Boeing sort of 20, 30 years ago, where they would have headsets that were a precursor of Google Glass or something, mm -hmm. that the people wiring the planes would see in front of them a projection of where they were supposed to clip that particular oh, wow. cable. Um, and it just sort of made the process incredibly reliable. And I would love to be able to go on site, put on our augmented reality headset and have it on the contractor, and you look around and you point and say, that corner's 20 mil out from where... You can see on the model overlaid, it's yeah. 20 mil out from where it's supposed to be. One thing that I sort of came across when I was doing some research earlier this year was, it's a horrible term, but it's the virtuality continuum. <laughs> which is uh, that you shouldn't think about these things as uh, real world and virtual world, but it's a continuum between the two. So you've got reality, then you've got mixed realities where you've got an overlay of augmented reality mm -hmm. onto the real world. Then you've got um, a, a combination of that and virtual reality. You've got partial virtuality, full virtual reality. It's a whole different range of states. Um, and I think that we... We don't really know what the uses for each of those different bits are. Because even if you take something like virtual reality, so what we've been talking about is very practical, very sensible uses of this technology uh, to sort of test uh, out uh, things you're going to build in the real world. Mm. But of course, there's other parts of virtual reality where you can be complete fantasy. Mm. It ne ne never needs to be built. Uh, it doesn't need to obey the laws of physics. And you're able to create completely weird and wonderful worlds. So there's virtual reality where it's trying to ape the real world. And there's virtual reality where it's trying to go off on a complete tangent. And presumably, there's sort of states in between that, which is a sort of magical mixed virtual reality where it looks completely real but somehow something like from a um uh, a japanese anime some giant cat bus jumps out of the sky at you or something unexpected you know there's that possibility to create some really quite weird hybrids i think it was just a couple of years ago where this technology really hit the mainstream with the release of those headsets like the oculus and the vive and whatever um, and so it, I think, is for the. It, it, we've reached a point where it's suddenly able to go mainstream in terms of the, things like the design community. Certainly. And beyond, I was reading today that I think it's, I think it was the Scotland rugby team are using it for their training now. Right. So they can set up various configurations of players, and you know, you can be have heads on, you can look for the gaps between players or whatever it might be. So. Yeah. It kind of knows no bounds, it That's seems, right. at the moment. Yeah. Well, there's this interesting thing where, it's, <clears throat> on the one hand, it has incredibly powerful uses in terms of simulation creating things that haven't yet existed or will never exist. But it also has an incredibly powerful uh, use in terms of um, documentation. So, you know, scanning places that are under threat. Uh, like the Macintosh school that burnt down, they'd fortunately 3D scanned it before, before it mm. burnt, so they're able to rebuild that. Um, and the use of virtual technology to, I'm not going to say entirely replace, but reduce the need for uh, physical interaction with places, I think is quite an interesting one. Um, so does everybody in the world need to see Venice before they die? Well, no, they can't, obviously, that we just don't have the resources to do that, to ship them around the world to get there. The place would be overrun. It wouldn't be the place it was. But for most people, if they could like take a trip around it in VR, would they be equally happy? 
maybe not quite yet, but it's getting closer to the point where it's a really great substitute for some of those things. For a lot of people to go and see the pyramids virtually is probably going to be as as rewarding as experience as getting up at the crack of dawn, getting on the back of a camel, you know, getting into the desert, being ripped off by a load of people trying to, you know, buy tourist hat off you. Or Are you doing us out of a job, though? Are you saying that effectively everything becomes a white box and everyone gets a headset and no, you go and you well, experience? Well, you see, I think that's interesting because that's people's fear. Mm. You know, there's a rejection of this technology partly because people fear that it's going to turn us all into the matrix where we live in squalor. Are, we're plugged into this vision of amazingness. And I don't think it needs to be, I don't think we need to be worried about that. It's never going to be the case that everyone on the planet is plugged into a VR system. <clears throat> it's just not going to happen. But for uh, certain, uh, certain uses, I think it does have that ability to um, reduce the burden on travel and, and so forth. I think it's possible without it being a threat, without it being an existential threat. Yeah, I agree. There's a another story I read recently of a of a guy who his daughter had some sort of learning disability or some something that meant she I, I can't quite remember the sort of details of it, but she effectively had issues because she couldn't go on school field trips and things like that. So she he made up a kind of a world where she could read about it in a book and then he'd got video clips and kind of put them all into this virtual reality headset that she can see and experience it. And apparently her learning development has just gone skyrocketed because she can translate, you know, what she's seeing. It's much better than learning out of a book, isn't yeah. it? You know, and fine, she can't go go on the trip for That's whatever reason, but it's amazing. It is. And he said he had no coding experience, no technological experience at all, and he kind of still managed to just teach himself through YouTube and what have you, and away he went. That is interesting. Mm. And also, <clears throat> for people who are even quite expert in subjects, so my father's a Roman historian, and... Um, I put, and you're very familiar with the forum in Rome, but I put him in the VR Google Earth version of it. And because you can fly up in the air or select any viewpoint, he was suddenly able to see relationships between buildings in the Roman forum that he'd never mm. picked up on before. And so it's it's an amazing, I think, adjunct. This is where I'm saying it doesn't need to be a threat. It can be an addition to our experience, mm, a really valuable addition to our experience, and that it doesn't just have to be about communicating stuff to the layman. We can all learn something from it. Um, just in our own experience, um, one interesting thing has been that back in the day, we did some virtual projects, uh, which were published in a magazine, and um, they were never built. They probably couldn't ever be built. Um, but they've rested on the page for 20 years. And we finally put them into the VR system, and suddenly we were able to see one-to-one -one these things that we designed that had never been realised before. And I think people are doing some stuff of sort of historical mm -hmm. recreation mm. Um, that's really interesting. There's an incredible... Someone's making a game of the sinking of the Titanic. I'm not interested in the game, but they've released the environment as a demo, and being able to walk around mm. the uh, Titanic, and it's modelled in intense detail. You can see the menus, you know, our menu items and all that sort of stuff. And interestingly, just like with my dad with Roman Forum, I took uh, the naval architect for Virgin, very, very experienced ship designer who's built things like the Queen Mary and da 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 da, da. and uh, 
he was picking up things in the Titanic that we'd have missed. Like, ah, oh, that that bulkhead is like that because that stops you know water building up in you know slops and da da da. da. And it was it was fascinating to see someone being able to reinterpret history mm. through this medium, and that's something I'd not particularly imagined would happen. That was Oliver Solway of Softroom Architects and Russell Potter of Soda Architects. This has been Thought Starters, recorded in the pod at White City Place. Thought Starters is a Dianica project for White City Place, produced by David Michon, recorded by Alex Portfelix, and edited by Sean Crook. To find out how you can record your own podcast at White City Place, find us at whitecityplace.com, on Twitter or Instagram at the handle at whitecityplace, or shoot us an email at podcast at whitecityplace.com. And subscribe to Thought Stars on iTunes, Acast, or Stitcher. Give us a rating, write us a comment. It really helps. We'll see you next time.